Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Kylie Camps, owner of the Kind Parenting Company, wife, proud mum of twin boys, and happiness advocate. This podcast is a place for women who want more from life. It's your time to cultivate more self-care, compassion, happiness, love, and confidence. Let's have real conversations to help you feel better, choose better, and live your best life. Welcome to episode 48. Today's podcast is a big topic and it's one that I have received countless messages about over the last six months. It can be a really sensitive topic as well and the topic is navigating your way through a separation with the focus being on your child or your children. Obviously with everything that's happened in my own personal life People are feeling more inclined to reach out to me and share their stories and ask for guidance. And I'm simply not qualified to give that guidance. And so today's interview is with someone who is far more qualified than I to speak about the topic of navigating through a separation and a divorce. Now, of course, it is important to note, however, that this podcast is not legal advice And therefore, if you or someone you know is experiencing a relationship breakdown, you should obtain independent advice from a lawyer, which is tailored to your own situation. I just wanted to include that disclaimer in there. Now, today's guest, I really, really enjoyed speaking with, and I feel like we could have spoken for so much longer, but there was so much helpful information in our conversation for those who are interested. So today's guest is Jackie Curtis. She is an accredited specialist in family law and a senior associate at Canberra's boutique law firm, Phelps Reed Foster Johnson. Jackie is also a mum to a three-year-old daughter who is raised in a cooperative co-parenting arrangement by Jackie and her former partner. Jackie has over a decade of experience in family law and comes from a typical legal background. Jackie is providing, very generously, a limited number of free consultations to listeners who want to know more about cooperative co-parenting after a relationship breakdown or in relation to family law matters in general. To have a confidential chat to Jackie, please visit the show notes where you can read her email address and get in touch with her. As I mentioned, this can be a really sensitive topic, but it is one that I was open to exploring with Jackie. She reached out to me and I thought, yeah, this is a woman who can help our community who are asking me these tough questions that I don't know all the answers to because it's all all new for me, guys. (laughs) So I hope that you enjoy this episode. As always, it would mean the absolute world to me if you take a quick screenshot right now, 
pop it on your Instagram stories and tag me at Kylie Camp so that I can hopefully post it on my stories too. Enjoy the episode. Jackie, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to sit with us and share a little bit of your personal and professional experience on this really, really big topic. I'm so, so grateful for your time. I was wondering if to kick things off, you could tell us a little bit about your life now. Thanks, Kylie, and thank you so much for having me. It's um, a pleasure to be able to come on and chat with you about my life and experience, both from a professional and a personal perspective um, in in family law. Um, So I am a traditional family lawyer, I suppose you could say, uh, in that I do court work, I do mediations, um, and in general, I assist clients who are going through a family law breakdown with issues relating to their children or in dealing with their finances. Um, That's something I've been doing for over a decade in a lot of different capacities and working with a really broad spectrum of clients from all different walks of life. Um, But for me personally, I suppose I got a whole new level of appreciation for what it's like to go through the kind of life upheaval that you have when your relationship ends um, and was, I guess, a bit humbled and a little bit humanised to discover that despite all my background in family law and having walked the path with so many clients previously that I wasn't immune to some of the difficult challenges that that kind of life change brings. Um, I was, you know, a bit surprised to discover that the things that I'd said to clients don't do or the messages that I would have uh, warned people about doing, I kind of was tempted to fall into myself even knowing um, the potential consequences that it might bring. So I suppose no one is immune to a family breakdown um, and it's such a shared human experience um, that people have if they've gone through it. Oh, massively. Even just hearing you say, Jackie, you know, that you're not immune to, you know, some of the thoughts or the temptations or the behaviours that you've seen, that just made me get tears in my eyes (laughs) because obviously it's so fresh for me as well and, you know, I do pride myself on trying to do my best, but you're only human. And like you said, it is a massive, massive upheaval and it's really hard. It's hard to stay level-headed and it's hard to know what path to take. It's really, absolutely. really tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're in that immediate post-separation period where, you know, you might be emotionally heightened your partner might be emotionally hard and your kids are going through a huge adjustment. Um, it might have been unexpected or even if it's been expected and you, it's been coming for a while, there's a shift that everybody has to sort of adjust around um, and, and learn to adapt to so that you can find what is a new normal. But that, of course, takes time um, and there's so much that's going on in your mind, in their mind, in the kid's mind that sort of affects how you think and feel and how you act. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, um, my my separation, not as fresh as yours, it was a couple of years ago now, but came at a really challenging time. You know, my daughter was 13 months old. It was a bit of an unexpected turn of events from my perspective. Um, and I'd only just returned to work after having time off um, on maternity leave. So, you know, I had that whole spectrum of emotions that people experienced 
when they go through something like this, the anger, the denial, um, shock and sadness and all of those things. Um, but I suppose what I knew from my professional background is that it is a process and it will come to an end. Um, it's a matter of just finding the pathway that's going to work for you and your kids and your your children's other parent um, to get through to the end, hopefully as unscathed as possible. Um, and for us, what that meant was really trying to adopt um, an approach which was respectful, which was low conflict, and which really placed the emphasis and the focus on our daughter. Yeah, which is ultimately the most important thing. And for Matt and I, that's been our North Star as well is, okay, yes, it feels like, you know, the ground has been pulled out from underneath us as adults, but yeah, definitely. We, we will cope, we will manage, and what can we do to stay really child-focused? And when I was reading your show notes, just sharing your story, it's so clear to me that now you're in a place with your ex-partner and you're very amicable. Is it fair to say that? Yeah, I think it is fair to say that. We, we've, we've worked really hard to get where we are now and um, we work in a very cooperative and flexible way with one another. Um, from the beginning, we both decided that we wanted to come out the other side of this, you know, not having had a battle, um, not having, you know, used our child in a... Um, conflicting way or as a pawn or as a weapon in our in our personal struggles with one another um we kind of said to each other you know what one day we want to get to a point where our daughter says to us oh you know I know obviously mum and dad you don't live together and you haven't lived together for as long as I can remember but I really don't think that affected me much at all you were both there when I needed you you both got along I never felt like I was stuck in the middle I never felt like I had to miss out on having both my parents present there for the things that were important to me um, and really just wanting to make her proud of how we dealt with it. And I think in this day and age, we're so fortunate to have so much data and information on the effects of a divorce and a separation on a child. So we understand it's not like 30, 40 years ago where, pa where parents would separate and think, oh, kids are fine, you know, they're so resilient, they get on with it. We do actually understand the effects that it has on a developing mind and particularly a really young one. So taking that into consideration does make it a little easier from my perspective to go, you know what, the onus, the focus needs to be on the kids. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, and you know, from my professional standpoint, I see that all the time. You know, the, the aftermath of really hostile and acrimonious co-parenting relationships is just devastating to see when people can't contain their conflict. And I guess I guess you have to recognise in, in most separations there's going to be a level of conflict. It's about how you manage it and scaffold your children emotionally around that conflict so that you can avoid some of those adverse outcomes that we know can result um, where parents aren't able to manage um, their interparental conflict and that may lead to increased developmental risks for children. Um, you know, there's a whole range of different things that can occur um, for children which are, are awful for them in their life and, and in their future relationships when their parents aren't able to kind of put their interests ahead of their own. Yeah, 
it is it's a massive task to really separate your own ego mm. and your own hurt it's, definitely it's challenging but I imagine like you said that your career experience really did fast track a lot of the misgivings and the learnings because it's not your first rodeo you've seen it before <laughs> yeah. you know you you can see from the outside which is often easier you know we always say sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees when you're True. amongst it so having had that outsider's perspective I'm sure did provide Definitely. a lot of um, scaffolding in being able to kind of avoid some of the misgivings and learnings. Absolutely. But, I definitely knew what I didn't want to have happen and that's what yeah. sort of guided me along the way. Yeah, and one thing that I did want to mention just at the start here is, you know, both you and I are in a situation where with our ex-partner we really, you know, they're, they're great parents. And we're very fortunate that we want to have that shared custody and have that shared ex parenting experience, even though it's no longer in a romantic relationship. But there are going to be people listening or perhaps, you know, who are currently going through or have gone through in the past where it wasn't appropriate to have yeah. that shared that's, experience. So I wanted to just put that out there first. For yeah, those listening, going, a, we totally really understand point. there are going to be situations where it's not safe for a child to be with one or even both parents so that's, that's right and I, I think also um recognizing that whilst working towards a low conflict and cooperative parenting arrangement is something um, that i think everyone should strive for in being realistic it's important to recognize that that just might not be possible for everyone um you know there are no two families are the same. They're made up of two people with totally different personalities, different beliefs and different values. Um, and you may also be in a situation where there are risk issues for you or for your children, which make that level of communication that you need to have to support a cooperative arrangement even more difficult, if not impossible. Um, you know, you throw in some potentially mental health issues or perhaps personality issues, and, and it does make um, working in this particular low conflict way even more difficult um, but I think that's where professional advice both from lawyers but also from psychologists can really help people develop strategies to find their optimum outcome um, and their optimum outcome might be different to the next person's depending on the two different parents in the equation. Yeah absolutely and so in your experience what would you say are the most common or perhaps um, unfortunate, what are the most common unfortunate dynamics that can mm. happen and should really be avoided at all costs where possible? Well, I, I think it is where parents lose sight of the children and, and keeping them at the centre of all of their decision-making. And I suppose what I see sometimes is that parents conflate what they think is best for their children with being one and the same as what they want. It's remembering, I think, always that, you know, what you think is best may not necessarily reflect what is best for your children and keeping your mind open to the input and perspective of both parents. You know, children are known to benefit more in the long term when they have input and engagement from both their parents. So when you are at that stage of making decisions around, well, what do we do next? Where are our children going to be? How do we want to raise them now that we're in two different households? Remembering that once upon a time you valued that other person's input and trying to keep that um, 
that in your mind at all of communication. Yeah, 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 that's right. It's, and it's and so I think losing sight of that means that you know there might be distrust and suspicion of the other party, and that makes it really hard to keep your mind open to the things that they're suggesting. Um, blame is a really challenging thing where people fall into a cycle of blame. They might be making threats or accusations or even just, you know, keeping tabs or an inventory of how the other parent is doing and being critical of them um, rather than being supportive um, and cooperative and respectful, remembering that your kids still love this parent, even if you may not anymore. I think one thing that I've really learned is you have to force yourself to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Yes. Because when emotions are heightened, like you said, it's easy to sort of go, oh, you know, you want to keep tabs or, you know, tit for tat. But if you can yes. actually just stop and go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on this one because I did used to like, you know, there used to be such a strong love and connection forcing yourself to really give them the benefit of the doubt can be a big one. I think that's a great tip. And one of the things that I um, found really helpful, and I now pass this on to other people I know personally and professionally who might be going through a family breakdown, is to try to find a way to get yourself to become indifferent to the things that your former partner might be doing as a strategy to managing your own emotional responses. Because we can't control what other people do we can only control how we respond to them. So particularly in that post-separation period where things are, emotions are running high, you know, you you will probably find yourself responding and reacting um, or being defensive over some of the most minor things. And even now I look back and I think, oh, at the time I felt like that was a big deal, but probably in hindsight, it wasn't worthy of all of that time and energy and stress from me. Um, it is about kind of choosing your battles and remembering the big longer term picture rather than living in the here and now at all times. And I love that you've shared that. When you mention you encourage people to try and become indifferent, what does that actually look like? Like how do you encourage people to build that skill of indifference? Because when emotions are high, it's hard. It's hard it to go, hard. okay, I'm going to be neutral over that. It is really hard. And, and look, I think that the strategies um, are individual to each person. You know, for myself, certainly time was a huge factor. Just the passage of time, giving yourself an opportunity to process your emotions, to sit with them for a while and then let them go. Finding someone that you can um, speak with and unload on in a really safe environment, I think is really important. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a therapeutic environment. It might be a friend or a mentor. Um, I would say that sometimes immediate family and friends, they can um, fuel some of the emotions that you might be trying to, to hose down. So being yes, mindful of yeah. the people that you are choosing to talk to as well. That's um, a big one. Finding people that can give you some objective input because Sometimes it's not helpful if you're going to a really close person who might also be experiencing their own range of emotions about what's happened to you. Like say, for example, your parents, they might be feeling loss and grief and anger as well about the fact that, you know, their former son or daughter-in-law has um, left their life now. 
Um, so downloading on them might not necessarily be the best choice because they're probably going to empathise with you, they're going to support you, but they might also not be best place to sort of pull you back and go, hang on a minute, have you thought about it from this way? Or maybe there's a perfectly reasonable alternate explanation for what happened. Have you thought about that? Might not necessarily be what you're wanting to hear in that moment, but it just helps to kind of counterbalance, I think, some of those emotions when they get um, really intense. Um, I think that is such great advice. I couldn't agree more. And I know myself, in my own experience, people love a villain. They want yes. to vilify someone and it can be hard for them to understand that there can be a separation without a villain. And yeah. you do have to choose who you speak to and I know myself, I figured that out very, very quickly and I'm very fortunate to have um, two girlfriends in particular, but one who is incredibly fair. And so I know that when I'm venting to her, she's not going to add fuel to the fire. She will say, well, actually, have you looked at it from this way, like you mentioned? And that is so helpful because it brings you straight back down to earth and goes, oh, yes, thank, thank goodness that's what I needed versus someone who's like, yep, you're right, let's, you know, grab the pitchforks and create a villain out of this person. So, yeah, choosing who you Very offload true. to invent yeah. with is so important. Yeah. And, you know, like all big moments in life, a separation really can be, uh, you know, I was going to say enlightening for lack of a better term because you do have to become really, really self-aware. Definitely, you do. And, and I think that if you're finding yourself falling into repetitive behaviours that you know are not helpful, um, it's about putting some systems and strategies in place um, to help you manage that. And, and I'll, I'll give you exa an example, which again, sometimes comes up in my work, but I've also fallen victim to it. It's when you're, you know, you might have received some sort of text message or an email from your ex, it's got you riled up. You really want to just fire something back, fire a missile back and just get it off your chest and then move past. <laughs> but, but instead of doing that, which, you know, it, it takes a lot of restraint to be able to stop yourself from doing that when you're in the heat of the moment. But, you know, a colleague of mine um, has some wonderful words around this and I've stolen this off her and used it over the years. She would say, put your phone in the fridge and let it cool down. Like literally put your phone in the fridge, walk away from it, let you and your phone cool down before you respond. So it's just that yeah. think, stop and, and wait before you're responding out of emotions. That's a great system. Now you also mentioned speaking with a third party. So would you suggest that, you know, couples who are going through a separation do reach out and involve someone such as a mediator? Yeah, look, I think that um, getting advice is really important and getting it as early as you feel you can manage is a great idea as well. Um, I think that a lot of the emotions that people experience when they've separated is a bit of fear about what's next. You know, what, what does the road to divorce look like? What am I going to have to do about my children? What am I going to have to do about my money? And it's that uncertainty which can really um, be underlying a lot of the emotions that we're experiencing. So informing yourself and getting the knowledge that you need to be able to make those decisions going forward might also help you in managing your emotions as well as making those key decisions. 
So um, and as far as getting legal advice is concerned, I mean, there's no real rule about when you should do that. You can do it as soon as you want. Some people engage lawyers um, for preliminary advice before they've even separated. You know, if they're the person that might be considering ending a relationship, they want to know what's going to come next. Um, if you're the person that is unaware that there's a separation that's going to occur once that happens, when you're feeling strong enough to be able to retain information, I think that's a good time to go and speak with someone. Um, and I think also knowing that just because you see a lawyer once off, that doesn't necessarily mean that lawyer will be in your life for then for thereafter. It might be that you just meet with that person, you gather some information, and then you go back to your former spouse and sit down with them with or without a mediator and work through some of the things that need to be decided. As far as mediation is concerned, I think that once you've gathered that information and once you have a pretty clear idea of what your objectives are and what your needs are, that would be the point at which it's it's helpful to sit down with a professional and start actually problem solving some of the things that need to be decided. I really love that you mentioned the importance of having those conversations and ultimately informing yourself not just to have that information and I guess know your rights, but to also take an action. I know for me, I felt so out of my depths and so out of control like, yeah. that it was out. It was out, like I felt, okay, this is actually out of my control now. So by actually taking those steps to speak to the people that I needed to speak to, it gave me a very small sense of comfort in going, okay, I'm finding my feet again and I can get this back under control. Absolutely. So it's not just the getting informed, it's also the, okay, you are getting back into the driver's seat and you're going to look after yourself type of mentality that can happen when you do engage a mediator. Or like you said, just having a conversation with a lawyer, I personally think is important because, you know, you've likely never been in this situation yeah, you know, that's right. and you just don't know how things can go or what you're, what you're entitled to, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's also important to remember that uh, there's no one set rule in family law and there's a real danger, I think, in taking informal advice from friends or family members who might have experienced it themselves and who might recount to you, you know, what the outcomes were for them. Um, mm -hmm. Family law by nature is extremely discretionary and that's because no two families are the same. So it wouldn't make any sense to have a one-size-fits-all approach. And there can be risk involved if you simply, you know, speak to your neighbour who says, well, you know, my marriage ended and my wife got half of everything. That might not necessarily be the right approach to your circumstances. So getting tailored advice for you um, is really important. And I think it's really so important to important. do that before you're making any big decisions. You know, like typically most people will fall into a bit of a default holding pattern in those immediate um, days or months after a separation. You know, you'll take care of just the essentials, where the kids are going, what bills need to be paid, who's going to be staying where. Those things will just kind of by nature happen because they have to. Um, but beyond that, making sure that you're really well aware of, well, what is the range of likely outcomes for me? What should I be expecting? And, and that also helps you to be realistic in your discussions as well and in your you know, mediation in terms of what you're seeking as an outcome. 
which is going to improve your chances of coming away with some kind of resolution. Yeah, absolutely. And now, in your opinion, how long does the average divorce take? This is one of the trickiest questions to answer, I actually. Love the even, though, <laughs> even though, even though it's you know, possibly the, the least complex question, it's possibly the hardest one to answer. It almost is how long is a piece of string. Um, yeah. it, it is very variable um, depending on the issues that are being dealt with um, and the personalities at play. Um, some people might find themselves having it all said and done within, say, six months, and I would say that's on the speedier end. Some people can be embroiled in litigation, embroiled in dispute for years. Um, it really is a variable thing. Um, but probably what people should know going in is that it will possibly take longer than you expect. Um, and partly that is because you need to let some of those emotions settle before you start making big decisions. It's a really dangerous place to be making life affecting decisions from when you're in you know a place of heightened distress or emotion so actually allowing yourself some space and time to let things settle before you make big decisions is important and it may not be you that's in that place it might be the other person because you may each be in different points of that grief process giving the other person the opportunity to catch up to where you are i think is important within reason um and um the other the other thing is, of course, often I say to clients, it only moves as quickly as the slowest moving party because you need to have two people who are ready to sit down at a negotiating table or in a mediation for it to go anywhere. Um, so I suppose being mindful that it might take a little longer than perhaps what you expect, but with two really focused minds who want to kind of work towards things, you know, it can be reasonably um, efficient. And is it true that you have to be separated for a certain period of time before you can become officially divorced? Yes. So if you've if you've been married and you want to get divorced, you need to be separated for a period of 12 months. However, in that 12-month period, it's a good time to be talking about what to do about your financial and property arrangements because there's no time frame um, required to be met before you can start dealing with those issues. And, in fact, there are some important time frames that come into play once you are divorced. So using that that 12 month period to sort of nut out, right, well, you know, what are we doing about our assets and what are we gonna do about things like child support, um, or ongoing expenses for our joint property and so on. Um, using that time, I recommend, is the best approach before you actually then look at the, the formal divorce. It's typically yeah. more the, the trickier bit as well than the, than the divorce itself. The divorce is quite straightforward. Mm, it's all the going back and forth yes. and finalising. And do you think during that time, during that 12-month separation, that it's really important to document everything? I suppose it depends on what you mean by document. If you're talking about, um, you know, collating evidence, as in, you know, keeping every email that your ex might send you or, um, you know, taking photographs of things to store for later, I think that can really work to undermine trust. Um, and usually I would only suggest that sort of approach to a client if I had a gut feeling that their matter might be one that ends up before a court and we do need to have evidence of certain things. Um, but I think if you're in a working towards a cooperative and respectful co-parenting space, then really just documenting the essentials is what's important. You can get a bit hung up on, you know, those, that keeping tabs on the other person and that's going to challenge your ability to get to that place of indifference. 
Um, there is merit though in, you know, having the logistics recorded. So in a parenting plan, having very clearly set out what the arrangement is, um, reviewing it regularly um, on a day-to-day -day level. It might be, you know, keeping a joint calendar or using one of the many apps that are out there for um, interparental communications, appointments, storing documents and so on for parents who are um, raising their children in separate households. Those can be really helpful tools to actually minimise conflict because there's less confusion arising about who's where on what day and whose job it is to you know, bring the lunches or sign the school permission slips, for example. Yeah, it has to be a real collaborative effort. Absolutely. And the reason I asked that document question, it comes back to the old, like you said, everyone wants to give their two cents. And yeah. That's the one thing that everyone was like, you need to do this. You need to document <laughs> everything. And it just felt like, I don't think I, there's no, what's the point, you know, like yeah. we're working to, you know, and that's it. I guess that's the difference versus if you're going through something that's quite nasty versus yeah. something that is a collaborative effort. That's now right. you mentioned that there are some apps that are great for communicating through. Mm. Would you say that that's the best practice for communicating with your ex or do you have any other tips for that? Look, I think it depends. It's very individual. Myself, I don't use an app other than a shared calendar um, because like you, Kylie, my daughter's father does do some irregular work hours. So for us, that just keeps our world in balance um, and we both have, you know, busy social lives and lots of other external commitments going on. So we've got a bit of a, a gauge on what the other person is doing um, and when they're going to be free it helps us to be more flexible when we need to make some adjustments to the routine. Um, we do but the same people, thing. We have a, yeah. sorry to interrupt, we have a shared yeah. calendar and that's where I can schedule, you know, that way Matt can jump in and he can see, okay, she's recording podcasts at this time, um, you know, and it just makes it so much easier because you know. That's right. And I think it also means you're not having to have that back and forth in communication all the time because sometimes you do need your own personal space and, and a bit of distance from that person. So if you're not having to text them every second day and say, oh, are you free on Friday night? I, I want to go for dinner with my girlfriends. Can you have, you know, our child? It, it's just easier if you're able to say, oh, no, he's got a commitment. That's not going to happen. I'll make a different arrangement or, you know, oh, yes, he is free. I might approach him and see if that's going to work for him or not. Um, yeah. So I find that really helpful. Some people like to use just emails. They, they, they prefer to just simply use an email. Some people use a communication book, which is like a hard copy diary that you might each write in and pass back and forth. It travels with the child. Um, yeah. Some people will do a weekly, monthly coffee catch-up face-to-face. Um, I do a little bit of that with my um, daughter's father. Every couple of months we might sit down and sort of plan out the ne the upcoming um, few months, for example, um, recently we sat down and had our chat about well, how are we going to manage Christmas and where are you going to be and where am I going to be and where's our daughter going to be and how are we going to accommodate, you know, her seeing extended family and all of those sorts of things. And, and we just find that type of conversation a bit easier face-to-face -face because we can both sit there with our calendars and our plans and, and workshop it together. So that's another one. If you've got that relationship there, um, which I find really useful. But you have to have put the work in first because I appreciate that, you know, immediately sitting down with your former spouse might not be the most comfortable place for some people. 
Yeah, and it is, I guess, it's just about having that communication because, I mean, I I like to, when I have the boys, I'll keep Matt up to date by sending photos of what they're yeah. up to or, you know, if we've had a great, you know, something happen, then I let him know just with a quick text. But I've said to him, are you comfortable with that? Because I didn't mm. want to be overstepping the boundary of, you know, I didn't want him to feel like he's being bombarded with what the kids mm. are up to or it could make him feel sad. So I had to say to him, hey, are you all good if I send a message to let you know that the kids love going to the cinemas today and here's a photo of them? Because, you know, I, I just don't know. So it's asking the question, I guess, of your your ex-partner, how do you want to communicate and what's going to be the best for both of you? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So establishing some boundaries in the early days about how you're going to communicate with each other, what level of communication you each expect, that can really help to minimise conflict as you go along. And that sort of discussion can occur in that mediation session or even face-to-face in the early days after you've decided to split up about, you know, I, I, I'd really like to hear from you each day just to let me know how they went going to bed or how their day was at school. But if you don't necessarily want that and you want to have a complete sort of break, then I can respect that and understand that we're different and we have different approaches to our parenting. So important. And now what are some must-do things when it comes to keeping kids at the forefront of both parties' minds? Like do you have, you know, like three or five things that you – suggest clients must do when it comes to kids yeah I guess we've covered quite a lot of them already um, and a lot of it relates to strategies for managing that communication with the other person Um, and some of it is in relation to the sort of tone of how you might um, approach those communications keeping things brief um, informative friendly and firm that biff mantra is really um is really useful way of approaching communications and knowing that um, even if you don't necessarily get the same response back um, it's about just managing yourself um, and the way that you respond rather than what getting upset about the way that they respond to you Um, managing your emotions and we talked about some of those strategies already about how you might do that um, by by talking to people, you know, journaling is another one um, or finding a safe space to sort of let yourself download away from your kids. I think um, always keeping at the front of your mind, placing yourself in your child's shoes and, and thinking how well, how are they going to experience this now that they're in a separated household? What What's going to work for them? Um, and a practical example of that might be, You know, if your child has a particular special event at their school, they might be getting an award or they're in a performance and it happens to be on your time um, and you recognise that perhaps, you know, your child's benefit, your child would benefit and and probably really love if both their parents were there to to see that, that special event. So thinking about, you know, what would the child want as opposed to what you might want, um, and again, that kind of goes back to, to recognising that what you want and what's best for your child may not necessarily be one and the same thing. Um, I think also a really important one, particularly if your children are a bit older, is to be shielding your children as much as you can from any tension or conflict um, and keeping them on a need-to-know basis about what's going on between mum and dad. 
um, you know, children are perceptive. They do pick up on things. They're likely going to notice that there will be times where you're up and down. But, you know, don't be using your children as your therapist because that can only undermine their relationship with the other parent and destabilise their impressions and perceptions of each of their, their each of their parents. So keeping parenting issues as between the parents is really important. You know, you don't necessarily need to be placing pressure on children by asking them to choose. That's a really, really difficult thing for children. Um, obviously, if you have teenagers where they're becoming a bit more independent about where they go and what they do, it's a little bit different. But on the whole, kind of trying to shelter the children and being a united front with your co-parent, um, communicating to your children that the decisions are being made by you and their co-parent and they don't need to worry um, is a really important thing. Um, probably one of the other ones I would say is that just being upfront with your with your co-parent about things that might have changed in your life or in the children's lives where it impacts on the kids is important. You know, it might be I've got a, a family member coming to stay for a week, I'm just giving you a heads up. There's a little bit of... Um, Sometimes, you know, the, the, the child will go back to the other parent and they might inform them about something and that can be a bit rattling when you're thinking, oh, I didn't know about that. And it's not necessarily about controlling or, um, you know, spying on the other parent, but I think it, it's that it, visibility. Yeah, yeah, there's that transparency and that trust that you have in the other person in saying, oh, by the way, you know, I had a friend over for dinner, just letting you know. I mean, obviously your level of sharing is going to be dependent on the level of trust that you've developed, but um, just keeping them up to date about any changes that might be happening for you and for the child when they're with you. And the obvious one is repartnering. Um, that can be a real trigger point, I suppose, for a lot of a lot of co-parenting relationships. You know, in my in my work, I often see things are tracking along reasonably smoothly until somebody repartners, and that's a whole new dynamic that everybody needs to adjust to. It's almost like that upheaval once again. Each of the adults has got their own um, experience of it. They've got their own expectations around it. So communication around it is so important um, to help the child adapt and help the adults adapt as well. Absolutely. And I think when it does come to repartnering, having the conversation ahead of time, yeah. I know that that's one that uh, I, we have had is you know actually saying that when the time comes this is how we feel that would be best to approach it you know just so that it's not like oh it lands in your lap and then you're not yeah. sure what to do having that little bit of structure and a plan you know it takes away I guess some of the amb ambiguity mm. of not knowing what to do mm. and when it comes to a plan can you explain a parenting agreement as a plan versus going through the actual court system? Yeah, sure. So um, there are a couple of different ways where if, that people can record or formalise um, their agreement about um, the way that they want their children to be cared for. Um, and there's also the option as well of having actually nothing documented. So some people, um, myself included, prefer to keep things pretty flexible. And, and partly for me, that's because my child was so young when we separated, her needs were changing so quickly that for us it was easier just to put some kind of basic parameters down on paper and then keep coming back to it, reviewing it and talking about it. 
for other people, it's, they feel a level of security and comfort in having things clearly set out in a, in a written document. And that can take one of two forms. It's either a parenting plan that you mentioned, Kylie, or there are orders which are made by the court. A parenting plan is a little bit less formal than orders. It's simply a written document signed by both of the parties, um, the content of which is completely up to the parents. And it can have a range of things in there from the basics, you know, what nights per week or month or year the children are gonna have with each parent, how you're gonna deal with school holidays, what sort of um, arrangements will be in place for special occasions like birthdays and Christmas, um, you know, whether or not you're going to do things like offer the first um, option to the other parent of caring for the child if you're unavailable. Um, it can have a s arrangements in it relating to what you do around medical and educational decisions for your child. Really, the, the options are endless in a parenting plan. Um, and I've seen some quirky things in them over the years as well. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's really, it can be very tailored to your children and to you. Um, it can be a bit more descriptive in terms of, you know, setting out some clear objectives at the top about what you want to strive for. Um, and one of the benefits, I suppose, of a, of a parenting plan is that it's really easy to update. You simply make a new one, write out a new one, make the adjustments you need, sign it, date it, and it's good to go. Where a parenting plan might not be appropriate is where there might be perhaps not that same level of trust underlying the co-parenting relationship and where one parent feels like they need the security of something which is uh, they can rely upon to ensure that the arrangements in the parenting plan are being followed. Um, and it might be where there's been difficulties in the past with compliance or concern that somebody's not going to be reliable, for example. Um, so in that instance, um, you can obtain from the court parenting orders and that's done in one of two ways. Either the parents agree on what the orders are going to be and they submit a joint application to the court. That doesn't involve any court attendances. It's simply some paperwork that needs to be completed, typically with some assistance or oversight from a lawyer, just to make sure that you're ticking all the boxes from the court's perspective. Um, and then from there, those orders are in place um, their final orders and I would strongly encourage if people are thinking of going down that road that they have a chat with a lawyer first to see whether parenting orders are actually what they need um, and about the effect of having final parenting orders made. The other option and thankfully this is the least common option is where a, a parents can't agree on what the parenting arrangement should be and they need the assistance of a judicial officer to make that decision and they um, place an one of them places an application before the court, and there's a series of court proceedings, um, which might you know go on for a year or two years um, before a final determination is made. And I should say that there's probably only around about three percent of people who end up being in a situation where they not only can't agree on what the parenting arrangements would be and have to go to court, but then they have to go once in court all the way through to a final hearing. Many, many cases that might start out in court end up settling somewhere along the way um, because the parents might have had input from an expert psychologist or an independent children's lawyer um, and also their legal representatives to help find some sort of resolution to the issues that are in dispute. 
And now speaking of dispute and I guess legal obligations, with regards to parents residing close by, is there any legal requirements such as, you know, one parent can't just pick up and decide to move away? Yeah, this is a really common question. Um, and I probably, to, to answer it properly, need to give you a little bit of a nutshell of what the Family Law Act says. So bear with me while I do that. Read um, us our rights. <laughs> <laughs> so the starting point uh, for parenting matters under the Family Law Act is that each parent by nature has what's called equal shared parental responsibility. And what that term refers to is not that, you know, each parent is equally entitled to have their children, but it, ref it refers to the decision-making responsibilities um, and authorities that parents have for their children. And I guess put in plain English, it means that the, the law expects that both parents will have a say and make together major long-term decisions for the children. Um, and major long-term decisions are things like where the children will go to school, if they um, need to receive a particular kind of medical treatment, whether or not they should have that treatment, if they're going to engage in um, religious participation, for example. And where this um, comes into play in a relocation issue, which is what you're um, asking me about, is if a parent makes a decision to move a distance from the other parent and that impacts on the kid's ability to spend time with the parent that gets left behind, that is one of those major long-term decisions that the court expects parents to make together. So if you are in a situation where you are thinking about moving your children away, and, and it does happen, you know, as humans, we all have a core human right um, of freedom of movement. So it's a really tricky scenario because it's putting that human right at odds with the children's right to know and spend time with both children, both parents. Yeah. If you're in that situation where that's something that you're thinking about, you do need to have discussed it and agreed upon it with the other parent before you move. Or if you're if you can't obtain the other parent's consent, then it would be a scenario where you're going to be needing the court's assistance to determine whether or not that move is in the best interests of the children. Excellent. Thank you very much for sharing that. I appreciate it. That's now, all right. Another question is probably a tricky one as well. It could be, <laughs> is child support mandatory? Yes, it is. So um, each parent has a legal obligation to provide financial support to their children. Um, and the child support agency is the agency that regulates the payment of child support between separated spouses. Um, however, lots of people elect to make their own arrangements without necessarily requiring the oversight of the child support agency. Um, the child support agency will provide to people an assessment of what um, you know you should be paid or what you should be paying based on each parent's income, each parent's level of care, and the ages of the children. So. If, if parents are starting out considering, well, what sort of arrangement is appropriate for child support, the on the Child Support Agency website, there's some really useful tools, including a child support estimator, where you can plug in some inputs around those things that I just mentioned and have a number come back to you, which reflects what the child support might be likely to assess in your case. And you can use that as a starting point to have some conversations um, the two parents about, you know, well, what's reasonable, um, what other things outside this do we need to support our children in the way that we want them to be parented? 
um, because the child support agency assessment really reflects the sort of running costs that you might incur for having children. It doesn't usually extend to things like extracurriculars or private school fees or other things that some parents decide are important for them to provide for their children. So around that extra kind of running periodic amount, there can be further agreements where, you know, you might share in some of those additional costs to, to get, give your children the opportunities in life that you both want to. Excellent. And so you mentioned that you can forego using that government agency. Yeah. But it would still be wise to kind of just inform yourself on what you would be entitled to, depending on which way it goes. Right. Yeah. So and form that agreement. That's right. And I think with anything, including... Um, the relocation uh, issue that we talked about, these are all quite tricky and quite specific family law issues. So obviously doing your research online is important, but I think it's also critical that you talk to a lawyer to get your um, to get your head around, you know, from your perspective, what is realistic and what is likely in your situation. There can be lots of options available to people. Um, and obviously the things that I've said aren't legal advice per se it's more of a general overview of what the options may be but there could be other things available to you and exploring that with with somebody who has expertise in family law I think will really you know put on the table for you the different um, strategies or options that you might have going forward. Mm, so important and so that's a great online resource are there any other online resources you would suggest our community head towards if they do need support? Look, there, there are a lot of um, resources out there. Probably one of the main ones that people access in the early stages of separation are some of the Family um, Relationships Australia and Family Conflict Resolution Centres in their state or territory. Um, they provide assistance um, by way of parenting courses, post-separation parenting courses, mediation, counselling and so on, and, and they are usually got some level of government funding attached to them, so they can be a really low-cost way of dipping your toe into the family law system. Um, I would also suggest legal aid in, in your state or territory. Legal aid um, is there to assist people who may not otherwise be able to afford private um, legal assistance, but they have a lot of online resources, fact sheets and brochures, which can help you kind of get a little up to speed with some of the general concepts around family law. Um, and I think, I think, that, I think that's probably what I can think of at the top, off the top of my head, but, um, you know, things like this podcast as well, are, are another way of informing yourself about what to expect but there really is no substitute. Again, I'm going to harp on about this. No substitute for getting personal tailored advice mm. about your circumstances. I agree completely. Now, thank you so much for your time in sharing your wisdom and your personal experience with our community. It's been super interesting to chat with you. For our community that may want to get in touch with you, is there is that appropriate? Is there a particular way that they can get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So I work in a private boutique family law firm and I'm, I'm based in Canberra, but Australia has a federal family law system, which means it pretty much applies Australia-wide with a bit of a limited exception to some issues in Western Australia. But in a nutshell, I'm happy to speak to anyone, no matter where you live, 
I am contactable via our um, email, which I think Kylie's going to pop in the show notes, so I won't bore you all by reading it out now. <laughs> um, and uh, you're more than welcome to have a confidential discussion with me about your particular circumstances um, and, um, you know, what what you might be able to achieve in terms of co-parenting, the sorts of strategies that I've discussed with you today, Kylie. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really, I really am very, very grateful for you taking an hour out of your busy day to do this for us, Jackie. It's, it's been my pleasure. I'm, I'm really happy to have shared and, and I hope that it can help you and, and other people who might be finding themselves in, in the midst of a family breakdown, but know that it does get better. Life, life goes on and you're just starting a new chapter. Absolutely, a new chapter, new season of life. Exactly. Thank you. And as you mentioned, I will definitely pop your relevant details into our show notes. So thank you again, and I'll talk with you soon. Thank you, Kylie. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 